millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Paul Hayward, the author and columnist, and Tony Hodson of the Coach's Voice platform. Right, chaps, take two. As we know to our cost, the original draw for the last 16 of the Champions League was scrapped. Apparently, there was a technical problem with the software. UEFA's computer said no. Chaos ensued. All in all, it hasn't been a great couple of days for sports administrators, has it? Now, as natural as it is to wonder what if, let's concentrate on the new draw. Instead of PSG, Manchester United play Atletico Madrid. Liverpool have a marginally tougher task against Inter Milan, as do Manchester City against Sporting Lisbon. Chelsea, meanwhile, the game remains the same. They've got Lille. Now, Paul, I know it's early, but that sets them up for a really successful defence, doesn't it? Chelsea, uh, yes, it does. They'd have been very happy to see the same name um, come out a second time round. There'll be some unhappy teams in there as well, not least Real Madrid. Real Madrid are the Lewis Hamilton of this uh, draw, this uh, (laughs) revamped draw, Mike, because, you know, they're just not going to be happy about going from Benfica a draw that was made before the cock-up to, to PSG. With all the attendant noise around um, Kylian Mbappe, that's, that's, a, that's a, a headline game, a, a very um, a, a appealing fixture. But for Real Madrid, it's a, it's a much harder assignment. And it's ironic, really, because uh, uh, Perez, uh, the Real Madrid president, uh, said he wanted to play top teams all the time when he tried to start a Super League. Well, he's got his wish, but not in the way um, he intended. Yeah, karma and all that, I suspect. You know, looking at Chelsea, Tony, Lille, surprise French champions, again, a pretty manageable task, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very manageable task. It's um, They'll be absolutely delighted, particularly as when the draw came round, it was Lille or Real Madrid, wasn't it? They were the only two balls in the hat. So they'll be, they'll be delighted with that. Uh, Lille, yeah, discussed surprise French champions. They're not going to repeat the feat this season. They're, they're kind of languishing in mid-table in France. Their, their main threats, a 36-year-old Turkish striker, Burak Yilmaz, and, and Jonathan David, the young Canadian, uh, who actually looks like he's got a real future. Uh, looks quite exciting. Um, but in terms of what could have happened, Chelsea will be absolutely delighted to have this fixture. 
Yeah, because when you think about it, Lille collected only two points from their opening three group games. The current form is obviously of, of limited significance, you know, given that the competitions won't resume until mid-Feb, Paul. But how concerned do you think Thomas Tuchel should be with it? Well, I, I think that with Chelsea, Mike, you're always on your guard for, for cracks appearing. And we've seen before really good managers going in there and having it's all wine and roses for three or six months. And then things start to sort of deteriorate, sometimes inexplicably. In this case, the crack, which Tuchel is obviously concerned about, is the sudden inability to keep a lead and the concession of, of too many goals, which... Uh, Chelsea's calling card, of course, their, their advantage over Liverpool and Manchester City was that they were the hardest team to score against. They were the probably the best organised team defensively. And I think that was, if anything was going to give them an edge in this brilliant title race, it was going to be that. So if they lose that advantage over the other two, it's going to be much harder for them to, uh, to win the Premier League title. And the same would apply in, uh, in the Champions League, of course, where they're defending their crown. But uh, I suspect it would, would be a temporary blip. I would think that Tuchel will know what has to be done to put it right, but ultimately it will come down to the players and their professionalism, you know, their concentration levels and their and their desire, their willingness to correct the errors that are now creeping in and that are just t- slightly taking some of the, the, the sort of momentum out of the Chelsea machine. Yeah, because when you think about it, you know, we, we were hailing them a couple of weeks ago about how secure they were at the back Yet, I think Chelsea have conceded eight in their last three games, which is the same total as in previous 18 in all competitions. With that defence in mind, Tony, you've got some contractual issues to sort out there, haven't you? Yes, you do. And I think, I mean, in terms of Antonio Rudiger particularly, he seems to be as uh, dominant at both the attacking end of the pitch as he is the defensive end at the minute. One of the two penalty goals against Leeds. And... uh, Always seems to be the heart of everything Chelsea do, don't they? Whether it's whether it's football or whether it's the occasional ruck on or off the pitch. Um, yeah, I can I can imagine him in a nice dark leather overcoat, operating as a bouncer outside Stamford Bridge, don't you? Yeah, he's, he, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't be messing with him, um, but then I wouldn't mess with anyone. I think I think I think Paul's right that that that, that kind of solid defence has been their calling card. It's certainly what drove them to to the Champions League win last season. Tuchel had such an immediate impact in that regard after. You know, slightly difficult times at Frank Lampard in that in that area of the pitch. I do think they're missing N'Golo Kante and Matteo Kovacic. I think whichever one of those start, and one of them generally does, they provide the legs in midfield. Jorginho is a wonderful technician and a half-decent penalty taker, but defensive transition is not his speciality. And I don't think uh, I don't think Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who's been playing alongside him in recent weeks, is really a specialist in that regard either. Marcos Alonso, who's covering for Ben Chilwell, we know has definite weaknesses going the other way. Um, so I think you'd expect with with Kante and Kovacic, I'm not sure of return dates for either, but you'd expect with those two back and available, Chelsea would, would, would be shored up a little bit more. I can't imagine any team managed by Tuchel being defensively weak for any sustained period of time, um, but he will be very annoyed at what he's seen in recent weeks. Mm, I suppose in that, in that context, Paul, Mason Mount, He's been their leading scorer with six goals. He's he's quietly restating his case, isn't he? Yes, he is. I mean, that might, to me, his case didn't need restating. His problem is that he's surrounded by 
uh, very potent attacking players as however good he is he's in competition for his place in a in a very very good team and he would only have to drop 5% on his level to find himself rotated or perhaps not even in the team at all that's how difficult it is but i mean my my guide is to say well if you were going to write Chelsea's best starting eleven down now for for a Champions League final uh, tomorrow, he would definitely be in it, and I would expect him to be a cornerstone of this Chelsea team for many years to come. Yeah, Liverpool club, you know well, Tony. They've got into Milan, who've, who've reached the knockout stage for the first time in a decade. You know, different manager uh, in place, um, Inzaghi instead of Antonio Conte. Same sort of system, three five two but probably more attacking, would you say? Yeah, on the, on the evidence of what... I won't profess to be an inter-expert this season by any stretch, but on the evidence of what I have seen, they probably are a bit more attacking. They're scoring more goals. Um, they've got some familiar faces up front. Lataro Martinez is probably their, their main attacking threat, but obviously they've got Edin Dzeko and uh, the 87-year-old Alexis Sanchez, who still seems to be <laughs> knocking them in occasionally. Um, they'll provide... I mean, they've also signed... Um, Denzel Dumfries, of course, this season, who I think we all recognise from the Euros was quite an attacking force for the in a, in a kind of slightly out of control Netherlands team. So he provides some real threat down down the right hand side, and they've also got some some familiar kind of Eastern European faces. Brozovic is kind of the heart of their midfield, and Ivan Perisic, who I kind of am a bit sad he's never played in the Premier League because I think Perisic would have been a great great addition to the Premier League somewhere. He just seems feels like a Premier League player, so they will pose a threat. And Liverpool won't necessarily be happy. I think it definitely, you know, on paper or even looking at the scores, the team that are top of Serie A represent a stronger threat than the team who are top of the Austrian Bundesliga. But then Liverpool sent a largely second string team to the San Siro and, and kind of waltz past Milan AC in the group stages. And I don't I don't think I don't think any team should really hold that much fear for Liverpool the way they're playing. So I'd expect them to go through still. No, they do seem irresistible at the moment, don't they, Paul? I suppose when you look at it, are we in now the phase of a season where, you know, as I said, there's two months until uh, the European competitions resume. Uh, a lot can happen in that time. Do you feel because the intensity that there is a great intensity to the Premier League title race that you might get some teams almost prioritising Europe? Uh, and I'm thinking here of Liverpool because logically, at least, they will be weakened in January because of AFCON. It's possible, I suppose, but I don't think they'd make that judgment until after January. You know, if they have a terrible run because they're missing so players, so many players in uh, January and Chelsea and Manchester City have steamed over the horizon, then Jurgen Klopp might look at it and say, well, you know, realistically, we know from our form in the group stage that we're in good nick in, in Europe. And indeed, Liverpool's recent record in Europe is, is pretty strong. They, they might well then switch it over and say, well, uh, let's finish top three in the league and try to uh, win the Champions League again for, what, the seventh time? There's a special magic about that for Liverpool, but I really wouldn't expect them to make that decision unless they were really forced to. I don't think Jurgen Klopp would for a minute want to put the idea in the in his players' heads that it was an either-or. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a guy who demands winning performances every single time. I think the other thing, sorry, the other thing to say about Liverpool in January is that they played Chelsea on the on the second, which both Mane and Salah are, are supposed to be available for. Um, they only have two Premier League fixtures in in January, which are uh, let me just chat home to Brentford away at Crystal Palace. Um, 
I mean, bearing if you assume that all three clubs are relatively near to each other by the end of December, then how much can go wrong across those fixtures? It, I just, I just, I just don't. Think, I don't see Plop. I mean, we, we know what he's like with the FA Cup. He may not be put. He may not be risking players against Shrewsbury or a subsequent fourth round opposition. I, I just can't see. I just, I, I can't see any of those teams being in a position when the Champions League comes around to be making a decision to prioritise one over the one over the other. Um, they're too good. When you when you look at them, Tony, when we look at Mo Salah, for instance, he's been involved in 30 Premier League goals this season, 20, scored 21 of them. That's twice the number of any other player. Again, are we almost taking that excellence for granted with him? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think I think Salah's been taken for granted ever since he arrived. That, that first season, not 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 by not by Klopp certainly, but that, that first season was so ridiculous and. There were so many one-season wonder lines, or he can't, he can't repeat this thrown out, and he's just repeated it season after season. There have been, you know, kind of small highs and lows within each season, but his general form has been ridiculous. He is, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't go in for the chat about who the best player in the world is now. I think individual accolades within a team game are largely pointless, but he is certainly playing at the absolute peak of his powers at the moment, and it's not just the impact he has with his goals and his assists; it's his all-round play. Defenders are so scared of him; they are. That even the best defenders don't quite know what to do with him. Do you sit off and let him beat you with pace? Do you, do you go and engage, but then he's strong as an ox? He'll just he can turn you and beat you. So and obviously then defenders are doubling up, tripling up at times, which means that other players are getting you know are getting more space and time elsewhere on the pitch for quick switches of play, which Liverpool do a lot, particularly from right to left when Alexander Arnold can just ping it over to Andy Robertson with with one of his trademark passes. So I just think teams find it impossible to play against him at the moment. Will it last forever? Probably not. I think that's, there's a reason why Klopp plays him in every game. One, he wants to play in every game because he's just avaricious for goals, as all the best strikers are. But two, Klopp thinks, well, while, while he's this fit and strong and well, just keep playing him. The impact of his absence will be seen only when the games come around. But uh, Klopp won't want to be without him for too many games, I don't think. Mm. What about Sadio Mane, Paul? You know, there is a school of thought that you know he might just be on the cusp of, of, of a very slow and uh, no doubt graceful descent, you know, the, the the definitive skill of a great manager is to be ruthless and to actually discard players almost to everyone else's surprise. What about Sadio Mane? Do you think he's got a long-term future at Anfield? Well, if he hasn't, uh, Jurgen Klopp will spot it because I think he has that talent for seeing a problem a year before it arrives. Uh, Sir Alex Ferguson was a master at that. I think he learned the skill from Jock Steen, uh, who always said, don't wait until the problem can't be solved. Solve it in advance. Um, you know, see it coming, stay vigilant. And in, if necessary, be brutal. It doesn't. It's not always necessary to be brutal with a player who's perhaps in decline, but a top manager, a ruthless manager, will always deal with it well in advance and start planning for it, really. I think Jota's arrival obviously uh, turned the Liverpool front three into a Liverpool front four, essentially. Uh, and it was only this time last year, of course, where everybody was saying that the, the Liverpool front three had run out of gas and, and that it was over. It was a wonderful you know, thing while it lasted and a, and a kind of a beautiful combination. But it was, it was on the way out. And this season, they've all come roaring back. Not necessarily all four of them at the same time because Mane has struggled at times and Firmino certainly struggled at times 
It may well be that if the, the first one to go could be Sane, but Jurgen Klopp will make the right call on that, I'm sure. Yeah, Manchester United, uh, they're facing Atletico Madrid uh, in Europe for the first time since November 1991, uh, when they lost to the Spaniards in the um, Cup Winners' Cup. You know, let's be honest, guys, you know, we were besotted by that idea of Messi and Ronaldo getting together. I suppose we've got a different type of theatricality turning up here. Simeone at Old Trafford against Ralph Ranick. You've done a lot of work with Ranick, Tony. How do you expect him to uh, evolve this team over the next couple of months? Well, the big challenge for, for Ranick is... is I think he likes to talk about himself, or at least he likes to hear other people talk about him as the kind of godfather of this heavy metal football that kind of Klopp and other German managers have taken on. His his, his influence over so many German of the current German managers, whether directly or indirectly, is is there for all to see. I was quite surprised at quite how many people from our own industry didn't seem to know that much about him when he took over at Man United, as though he'd never done anything anywhere ever before, when that clearly wasn't the case. The challenge for Rangnick is to impose his will and his fundamental philosophy of high press, high energy, attacking football onto a squad that hasn't seemed particularly capable of doing so in, in, in the evidence of this season or the previous couple of seasons, either under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. He's, first and foremost, the, the signs were, were good against Crystal Palace, less good against Norwich, I thought, where they, they, they looked sluggish on and off the ball. And we're probably quite fortunate to get the win on the balance of play, um, although I think it probably was a penalty. Ronaldo tucked it away as Ronaldo does, but he's going to come up against Atletico in this in a in a team that are also full of energy, full of guile, uh, and almost the opposite of their original draw against PSG, which was a team of you know blistering individuals. Atletico are one hell of a team; they will use every trick in the Simeone playbook to try and thwart whatever Man United do but the question is will will United be able to do it you know the, we've seen a 4-2-2-2 to this point wouldn't say it looks absolutely brilliant doesn't look like the solution to all their problems and the obvious problems he's got is the ones that Solskjaer had before how do you get how do you use Ronaldo in a, in a supposed pressing team do you incorporate Paul Pogba in this the early signs are that Rangnick isn't that fussed either way Pogba would definitely bring quality but would he bring the high energy across 95, 96 minutes a game that, that Ragnick will demand from his squad. Who knows? He's got two months to try and build on something, to try and build something and build a team that is capable of playing the way he wants. Of course, the thing about the thing about Ragnick's style and then the Gegen Press style, it doesn't just demand high energy and quality off the ball. It demands a huge amount of quality on the ball when you have it. And United haven't really shown that in possession for quite a long time. All their most effective work has been done on the counter-attack, but mostly the counter-attack from deep not counter-attacks in the final third, having pressed high. So the the squad and the players and the style of play that Ragnick has inherited is not at all the kind of style that we would expect him to impose. The question is, he hasn't done it in two weeks. Can he do it in two months? It's true. I, but I suppose when you when you look at United at the moment, you know, I agree with you, Tony, that it looks like uh, Ragnick has got no thought of indulging Pogba and his agent. I think more more pertinently, uh, Paul, um, how does he solve the Sancho conundrum? You know, he seemed to me, at least, strangely cowed and he's lacking almost confidence and freedom. Yes, it's a reminder to me, and I watched the Norwich game quite closely, and I, and I, and I was sitting there thinking, 
a good idea by itself, a good tactical plan by itself will not solve Manchester United's, all of Manchester United's problems. It'll solve a lot of them because it'll give them a structure and a shape and a pattern of play. But you can see there are other problems that he's going to have to solve on a kind of um, psychological or emotional level in some cases. And Sancho, I noticed uh, before he was taken off in the 67th minute and replaced by Mason Greenwood, he played five consecutive in safe infield balls rather than go at his opposite number, rather than try and make something happen. Now, I know he's not, he's not strictly a kind of strike runner, a conventional winger. He likes to get behind a fullback or a defence and, and play people in and get himself played in. Nevertheless, his timidity in those 10 minutes before he was taking off, taking off was baffling. And Ranić clearly spotted it and replaced him. Now, I don't think he's shrinking from the challenge. Uh, some players do when they join these big clubs. Manchester United players have talked about this before. Somebody walks in the dressing room onto the pitch at Old Trafford and they can't cope with it. I think, I think Sancho is a, t- is a confident lad. I don't think he's scared of wearing a Manchester United shirt, but something is holding him back. There's an inhibition there. He's got to go and attack the opposition. He's got to be bolder, assert himself and make things happen. And Rangnick, I'm sure, on his very long to-do list, will will have that pretty near the top. Yeah. For Atletico, this is probably a little bit better than than playing Bayern in many ways, which was, which was their original draw. And um, they really didn't get going in the group until I suppose the, they beat Porto on the final day. Diego Simeone, Tony, you know his record is fantastic. Two Europa Leagues, two Super Cups, two Champions League finals. But it's the way that he's achieved it and the force of his personality. He's going to be compelling, isn't he? Yeah, he is compelling. He was in, it was, interestingly, when, when, when Ralph Rangnick appeared at the Coach's Voice conference back in September, he was talking about styles of play and he said that you could be an alien and come to come to the planet for the very first time, and you could see you could spot a Diego Simeone team a mile off, uh, and, you'd, and and indeed the manager standing on the well, not standing on the touchline, prancing up and down the touchline. But he is drama. It's ironic, the kind of the way his teams play are kind of an antithesis to the drama that he provides physically on the touchline. You know what you're going to get. It's going to be some kind of variation of four four two. It's going to be in your face. It's going to be cynical. It's going to be time wasting. Um, but they're, they're they're kind of the panto villains of European football. Um, they've been sticking it to the big two in in Spain, who you know could be cast as villains and their own in in other ways. They're kind of the the gritty underdogs there. But in Europe, they kind of develop this own persona of themselves as being the kind of yeah, you know, like I said, the panto villains. They had to spoil the party. They did it unbelievably Anfield two years ago. And the irony of that performance, particularly, is that they when they actually when they actually attacked and played football, they were brilliant. They just don't seem to like to do it very often. Um, now the question is, what what you know what will happen in the first leg? Um, you know, typically you think they try and get a lead and sit on it, and then come and see what they do. But you know, if there's if we're thinking looking forward to a game that's going to happen in two months, there are many question marks over what we're going to have by Man United by then. We know exactly what, what we're going to get with Atletico. I guess the only question mark going forward for them is, you know, Griezmann's come back and has had an impact. João Felix continues to be slightly frustrating talent, brilliant one game, anonymous the next. Um, and obviously you've got that other guy up front as well who probably love going to Old Trafford. Yeah, well, talking about pantomime villains, um, Luis Suarez, obviously they signed him from Barcelona um, summer before last. 
or sorry, last summer, 21 league goals last season, but that only just tells half the story, doesn't it? Again, another personality who will want to impose himself at Old Trafford. Yes, it, it, as we said earlier, the, the UEFA's punishment for um, you know messing up the draw this morning is that they've lost they've lost Messi against Ronaldo, and that was that's the price they paid for not getting the draw right, and that would have been that would have been a, just an electrifying encounter at Old Trafford. Luis Suarez walking out there doesn't have quite the same uh, showbiz rating, but it but it will be interesting, and of course every time. Every time you see him score for Atletico, you wonder why he's not still at Barcelona. And when you when you write down your list of of, of Barcelona uh, baffling Barcelona decisions, uh, that is that's on the list. I'm sure there were financial and political reasons for it. There always are, but there's there's no reason for Suarez to be scoring for Atletico when he could be helping Barcelona through their very difficult uh, period. It's always good to see him back in a stadium. You know what you're going to get with him. He's he's you know he's a <laughs> Well, he is a, he's a, I wouldn't call him a villain exactly, but he's, uh, he, plays, he plays in the shadows, the, the moral shadows, doesn't he? But he's capable of these brilliant um, acts, these brilliant moments. And um, I, I'm sure he's going to be a, a major feature in those two legs, the Atletico Man United legs. Mm. Manchester City have got to Sporting, decent young side. Again, they came back in their group. They did have back-to-back defeats in it, but three straight wins uh, got them through. New coach... What sort of challenge do you think they'll present, um, Tony? They'll present a certain challenge. I mean, they're having, yeah, like I say, new coach Ruben Amory is only, only 36, which ordinarily would probably have him as the youngest manager in the last 16, but not with not with Matthias Yesler at Salzburg only being 33. So, it's, But it's good to see young managers having an impact. Sporting, I think, have kind of in recent time has been the, the poor relation a little bit to Porto and Benfica in, in, in the Portuguese league, haven't they? But they're up there at the moment challenging for the title got the better of Dortmund which I don't think many people would have expected and I think when you get results like that it just makes you sit up and take notice not necessarily of the team but of the coach so I think Ruben Amorim could well be one to watch in, in years to come I think they play with a back three most of the time as well um, that I mean the formation won't give Pep too many nightmares Pablo Sarabia is probably their main creative talent uh, who's on loan from PSG Paulinho scores the goals uh, you know they're, they're a good team they play good stuff they're improving you probably expect to see some of their players move on, but they haven't got anywhere near enough to trouble Man City, I don't think. With City, how do you see that that team evolving, Paul? You know, we've just had a weekend where Raheem Sterling uh, reached his 100 Premier League goals limit. First 50 goals took him 193 appearances, the second uh, only 111, which suggests he's improving and in a good team. Um, but it's strange, isn't it? There's still a sense of impermanence about his presence at City. Yes, I was amazed that he's only scored 100 Premier League goals. It feels like 200, really, because he's been quite a, around quite a long time. He's had a, he's had a rough time. It, there, there's no question, and it must be in his head, that, that, that Guardiola has on occasions had a slightly lower opinion of him than uh, some of the other stars in that team. And I think... You know, Guardiola's a purist, a perfectionist, and whenever Raheem Sterling's um, technical level dips, his finishing uh, level dips with it, and Guardiola hates that. And you can see him occasionally trying to punish Sterling for that. Uh, And he was, you know, not really part of the starting eleven for a a major part of uh, this season. He seems to have forced his way back into the team. And I noticed that Guardiola was talking the other day of him going back to basics 
And I think what he means by basics is his, is his touch, his, um, his technical level, and just getting everything right and organised so, um, so that he can use his, um, you know, his pace and precision. So if he has gone back to basics, I think it's paying off for him. He looks, a, he looks now a fixture in the team again, although you know, that's a big statement given the people who are on the bench. Uh, City, how are they going to evolve? Uh, I still think, call me old school, but I think ultimately they're going to have to buy a, a number nine, a striker at some point. I think there are, there are times when you think the, the false nine system is, you know, doesn't need changing. It's, it's, it's brilliantly destructive. Bernardo Silva is obviously taken over from David Silva as, as, as one of the kind of, um, as the orchestrator of the team in many ways. But you still feel there's just that extra bit lacking. There's still that sort of world-class finisher missing from that team. And there are occasions, I think there are games, particularly in the final stages of a Champions League, when that's just going to catch them out. Yeah. You deal with coaches all the time, Tony. It's almost a media cliche to talk about you know, Pep Guardiola as one of the you know the great godfathers of modern coaching. Is that reflected in the experiences of the coaches that you speak to? You know, do they have that sense of re- reverence for him that that we do in the media? Oh uh, yeah, they do. Pro- probably in coaching circles even more, actually, even more so because I think if you compare him to some of the other coaches uh, at the top of the game at the moment, you know, Klopp is a bit of a media darling, isn't he? Um, doesn't mind having a moan here and there. Um, doesn't lose many games and therefore doesn't get a chance to show the other side of himself too often. I'm not sure Guardiola quite has the same level of charm that Klopp or someone like Pochettino has either. Other coaches in the game, they don't they don't really care about the gloss. They don't really care about it. They, just, they care about the coaching and the, and the, and the results. And Pep is obviously massively influenced by by Johan Cruyff growing up through through that school at Barcelona. You see that all the time. Like, you know, we talk about the, the lack wanting to play not only not with a striker, but also not with any defenders. We we talked before about Joe Cancelo, haven't we? And how he doesn't mm. really doesn't really fit the traditional view of a fullback. And I think it's very difficult to find players. There aren't that many players who can fit into a Pep Guardiola style of play because he expects so much from everyone all over the pitch. But I think the way that he wants to play football, the way he develops his teams to play football, the rotations, the movement, the speed at which they move the ball, and also the kind of cynical way they commit fouls very, very quickly when they don't have the ball, when they lose possession. I think coaches look at that and they say, this is the way we want to play the game. Now, you can't. Not every coach can play that way. And, you know, under 15 coaches working across the country won't be able to do that. But I think coaches who consider themselves students of the game look at Guardiola and think they're watching a master. Yeah, this is probably an unfair question, Paul. So apologies in advance. If you if you're picking your fantasy team, who is your fantasy manager or head coach from the Premier League? Well, from around the world, wherever you want. Well, uh, I'd be tempted to go for um, Guardiola for the reasons that Tony's just um, outlined, but at the moment. I'm I'm going to have to go with uh, Jurgen Klopp because I I just think he um, I think the way he's brought Liverpool back this season is a is a is a major kind of plus on his CV because you know he could have been one of these managers who builds something good for two or three years and then it just it just runs its course you know and it and it um, disintegrates but actually the way Liverpool have come back this year I think I think has added to his luster. 
And I think he's a great combination of, of um, uh, uh, pragmatism, idealism, uh, emotion, romance, motivation and farsightedness and judgment of players as well. I think he's a, I think he's a, a brilliant judge of what he's seeing and he's got this tremendous personality, this character, this commitment that carries him through ultimately difficult patches with a squad, as we've all acknowledged, that isn't as strong from, you know, 1 to 20 as uh, Chelsea um, and Manchester City. So I think, I just think there's something special about him at the moment, although if I was going for the the, the, the purist, you know, the the sort of the god of the profession, obviously you'd, you'd stick with Guardiola. Mm. Yeah, another a former Liverpool manager, Brendan Rodgers, his Leicester team are playing Randers uh, in the Conference League. Brendan actually made a point of stressing his ignorance about the competition on the way in, which probably didn't strike the right tone, did it, um, Tony? Probably not, no. No, I think... <sighs> it, it, it's, a, <laughs> it's a difficult one because I suspect between the three of us, we don't have a huge amount of respect for what the Europa Conference League is anyway. I'm not sure anyone in Europe does. Um, but if you're a manager and you're a team, and you're a manager of a team that now finds itself in that competition, you should probably make a slightly better effort to show that you care even at least a little bit about it. And of course, the reality is, of course, he, of course, he knew what the competition is. He, it's actually, it's actually not true, as well. It, it feels like it's maybe one for the fans, but I'm not sure the fans would necessarily agree with it either. They've just looked careless this season, Leicester, haven't they? They've, they've, they've conceded too many goals. Similar problems, set piece problems everywhere. They've missed some key players at some key times. Of the everlasting question about when will Jamie Vardy finally slow down? You know, they've had two seasons where they've really knocked at the door of the Champions League places. Doesn't look like this season. There's still time, still plenty of time. And, you know, the result of the weekend was was impressive. And obviously they've got some key players coming back to form. But you probably think on the balance of play, they'd, they'd rather be in the Europa League or not in Europe at all. So this halfway house they find themselves in is not good news for anyone. That's probably what Brendan was getting at. Mm, yeah, lest we forget, Paul, um, Tottenham's presence in that competition depends on a decision by UEFA's control, ethics and disciplinary um, body, which sounds a, um, a great title, if nothing else. You know, the serious issue there, you know, theoretically, they're in the draw and they will play Rapid Vienna, either them or, or, or Vitesse. The serious issue is, are the COVID implications? Is football almost sleepwalking into another out of pandemic football. Yes, I think I think the, the the reaction to Tottenham not being able to fulfil that fixture was was worrying, because uh, if football thinks it's become immune from the pandemic and the and the laws the natural laws of the pandemic don't apply to football, I think it's in for a shock. So I think there should have been a lot more sympathy for Spurs. Uh, when that game um, didn't take place, you know, there was even a suggestion, you know, there was a threat that, well, they'd be thrown out of the competition because there's no time to play the play the game. They can't fit it in. This is this is completely the wrong mindset uh, for football. We're in the we're in the throes of a seriously dangerous situation again. And I, I think football's done really well to keep going. Uh, but I think it might have become a little bit complacent. And it may it might think it's going to carry on regardless, but I'm afraid um, reality might well bite um, sometime in the new year. Mm. 
Lest we forget, there were actually two other draws. We had the conference draw and the, the you know the reset Champions League draw, but also the draw for the uh, playoffs in the Europa League. A couple of interesting fixtures, obviously. Borussia Dortmund against Rangers. Tony, pretty difficult task. Yeah, really difficult task. I think again, Dortmund. It's interesting talking earlier, isn't it, about about priorities in the season. Dortmund. Would, would not have wanted probably to drop into the Europa League, but they're in it now and they're a really good team. Some great players. They've got one of the one of the great strikers in world football at the moment in in Haaland and some real talent behind. And we might talk about Jude Bellingham, who is probably one of the most exciting English midfielders in numerous generations, possibly. Um, so on paper, they're a, they're the stronger stronger of the two teams. They should they should progress and kick on and try and win this tournament. Um, but Rangers have started pretty encouragingly under Gia van Bronckhorst. Um, a lot of noise around Gerard leaving, of course, and he had an early defeat against Hibs in the Scottish League Cup. Um, but they've won every game since. You'd expect Rangers to go on and, and and win the Scottish Premiership again. Although Celtic will be closer than they were last season. Uh, Alfredo Morelos, who is probably an underrated striker, I find him extremely entertaining, but also knows where the net is. And Kamar Roof, uh, who did well at Leeds before moving up there, seems to get most of the goals. Early signs of that Van Bronckhorst hasn't changed a huge amount. Um, so it could be an, an interesting tie, but you'd expect Dortmund to go through. Yeah, Dortmund, one of you know, several quite celebrated clubs in that competition now, Paul. Tony mentioned uh, Jude Bellingham. It's one of the you know, recurring issues in football, isn't it? You you hear a name of a young lad. You know, I go back to even Michael Owen when he was about 12. Same thing happened to Wayne Rooney. Exactly the same phenomenon with um, Jude Bellingham. He's a special player, isn't he? Yes. By the time he reached uh, 16, uh, the place was crawling with top-level scouts. He was one of the most, you know, coveted young signings out there, not just in in England, but in in Europe. And I'm not surprised. Uh, As part of my book book research, I went recently to Duncan Edwards' grave in Dudley, and it may seem a a fanciful comparison. I'm not saying they're the same player, but it just struck me that... um, Jude Bellingham was born just down the road from where Duncan Edwards uh, came from, and it started me thinking about midfield players and 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 different attributes. And you know, Bellingham's ability to play in lots of different roles uh, and to screen if he needs to, to drive forward like a number eight if he needs to, to get in the box and join attacking play if he gets the chance. He's got all of that, and on top of that, he has a kind of he has a a, a strength. An authority on the pitch, I'd say. Uh, tremendous natural talent. Uh, he looks to me like a kind of... A, 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 he will end up as a number eight uh, in an England midfield with Declan Rice, I suspect, maybe as soon as 12 months from now. I, I, I think uh, English football hasn't produced many players of that type. Uh, Lampard and Gerrard are the obvious ones. But I think uh, Bellingham is a, is a modern is a is a modern version of that type of player, um, a born number eight, a born kind of uh, you know potentially an aristocrat really of the European game. It's tremendously exciting exciting that he's English, and at some point the Premier League uh, will rep- repatriate him at enormous cost. Yeah, and that could be sooner rather than later, I would suspect, um, Tony. And it would also point out the fact that, um, and we mentioned uh, Jaden Sancho earlier, is the Bundesliga now probably the preeminent developmental league? 
I think I think it is. Yeah, I think it is, and I think you've seen with you know Jaden Sancho, and actually one one of the one of the reasons that that Sancho has come back for such big money is because he went away and and played regular football in a system that he understood where he felt valued. I, I agree with Paul. He's a he's a confident young player, Sancho, but. I think the lack of clarity that has been at Man United in his time there so far has definitely hampered his own game. I think not just with the way the German system is in terms of, of in terms of club ownership and, and fan fan involvement, but also in the, the, the generation of exciting young German coaching talent that we've seen coming through. There's kind of no better place for young players to want to go. You know, when I think as a kid thinking about young English talent, could you imagine Gaza going to Germany, going to the Bundesliga at any point, or even Wayne Rooney? It would have been unthought, unheard of. But the fact that so few eyebrows are now raised when a talent like Bellingham goes to such a big club in Germany suggests that this, people understand that this is where players can go and really develop. Um, Bellingham's an incredible talent. I think in two games against Man City last season, he was absolutely superb in in, in, in both games and. You know, there are a few midfielders in the world who can face Manchester City and somehow come out looking like they know how to run a game. Granted, they didn't get the results, but it was still some effort from a player so young. Um, and I think, you know, he'll play this season. I, I, I would be surprised if he wasn't back in the Premier League for the start of next season. The question is, is where. Mm. Do you want to provide an answer to that question? Uh, I think he would fit the Liverpool midfield particularly well. I also think he'll fit. I, I, I think he could play in the in the double pivot that, that Tuchel likes at Chelsea easily. I think he'd be absolutely brilliant there. He's got not only does he have huge quality, but he has a huge engine. I'm talking earlier about the way Chelsea have missed Kante and Kovacic. Well, Bellingham is arguably better than both of those on the ball um, and just as athletic. Uh, I think he'd almost certainly fit in somewhere at Man United. Man City are the one team I look at and, and wonder. Ironic because he played so well against them. I'm not quite sure where they would look to use him because he doesn't strike me as best used as a, as a single pivot in front of a back four. Um, he's, he's better going further forward. But the way City tend to play, I, I just wonder whether we'll get the best out of him. But I could certainly... I mean, he, he'd fit... I'm talking rubbish. He'd fit in there perfectly, I'm sure, if he was here. <laughs> what, do, what do you think? What do you think? I, I think your first choice is an interesting one. Barcelona, although he would be perfect also for, for Manchester United if they can get some semblance of uh, of cohesion there, you know, in a strategic sense, if nothing else. Talking of uh, cohesion and strategy, Barcelona have had nothing really uh, in, in, in that area for a while. They've been in the draw for the last 16 of the Champions League every time for 17 years. So it was a real shock pull, wasn't it? when you saw them in the Europa League, where they'd got uh, Napoli. Let's put it into a broader context, if we could, to finish off. The decline of the top two in La Liga, is that directly related, you feel, to the English dominance in Europe? Well, the English dominance in Europe reflects this avalanche of wealth, TV money, um, and the, 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 the sterling work now being done in Premier League academies, that's, that's an important part of it. But essentially, it's money. The, uh, the Europe has been blown away by money, by Premier League money, and, and the Premier League teams now have a huge uh, wealth advantage. But I don't think we can let you know, the big Spanish clubs off the hook entirely. Both um, Barcelona and Real Madrid have been uh, mismanaged to a large degree, particularly Barcelona. You know, if you think back to that... Champions League final at Wembley, where 
Barcelona barely gave Manchester United a kick, you know, and you just and there was a feeling back then that this 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 Barcelona dynasty would go on forever and it would be self-replicating. Well, what they've shown is that um, when you start making bad decisions and you lose your way, and and politics becomes more important than football, you can you can take a pretty sharp fall from grace. And Barcelona ending up in the Europa League, um, in the Maradona derby against Napoli. Is a is a is a big fall from grace, and it may not have stopped. I mean, there's they they've the structural problems there, the recruitment um, mistakes, the 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 financial woes. This isn't this isn't a little sort of uh, small detour into the wilderness for Barcelona. I don't think it's going to take a long time for them to get out of the mess they're in. At least they have a player who's representative of the golden era. The um uh the 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 Messi. Um, uh, era uh, in Xavi so they've got the right person there spiritually but if his hands are tied financially and politically uh, Barcelona are going to be in the shadows for a long time Yeah, Two of the last three finals uh, Tony have been all English affairs let's end with the question is this going to be another repeat um, unless Bayern Munich have their way then I suspect so yeah I think I don't think we're saying anything groundbreaking or new or surprising to say that Manchester City, Chelsea, Liverpool and Bayern Munich are probably the best four teams in Europe at the moment. Um, So you would expect, as per the new draw, Bayern now have Salzburg, Chelsea have retained Lille, Man City would expect to go through against Sporting and and Liverpool probably have the toughest task against Inter. But I think there's a very strong chance that those four teams will represent four of the, the last eight. The draw then... Well, they can't mess the draw up for the quarterfinals because there are no more restrictions. So that's, that's that's one positive. But barring absolute, I'd, I'd be amazed if two of those four didn't somehow find themselves in the final. So the only question for the English teams is whether Bayern will spoil somebody's party. They're the only team that look really capable of doing so. We may be surprised. And hey, Man United may surprise us as well, but that's just another English team. So um, I'd be... <laughs> My fan hat wants at least one English team, one specific English team in the final. Uh, my objective hat doesn't want two English teams in the final because they're generally quite disappointing affairs, aren't they, when you get two teams from the same country in a major European final. Uh, so I think it would be kind of a shame if there were two, but not at all a surprise. Yeah, well, I agree. I think Bayern logically are the only team who could break the English domination. I actually see no reason to change my original prediction back in August. Um a seventh star for Liverpool, if that's still a thing. Now, I understand this might go down badly, but in the broadest sense, is this domination a sign of weakness rather than strength? Money will continue to shape modern football until it's twisted completely out of shape. The wealth of the Premier League is a bad thing for the game as a whole. Do you agree? To be honest, I understand if you don't. But in the meantime... Thanks to Paul and Tony for their insight. Thanks to UEFA for eventually getting it right. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.